Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hello, Andy. How are you today? I'm good. And also Hugh Syme. How's it going, Hugh? It's going well, thank you, Andrew. How about you? Good. So three of us are in Indiana and one's in Paris today. Uh, a New Yorker living in Paris for 30 years. Veteran rocker and author Elliot Murphy joins us today. His career in music and literature is more active now than ever. He's released over 35 albums, still performs all over Europe, the U.S., and Japan, and is a prolific author of fiction. Four decades have passed since the release of his classic first album, Aqua Show, 1973, and in 2016, a biopic of his career, The Second Act of Elliot Murphy, featuring interviews with Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen, was released all over Europe and won the Audience Award at the Dock of the Bay Film Festival in Spain. He's been recognized by the French Minister of Culture and was also inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame by Billy Joel. Please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Elliot Murphy. I was trying to remember today the show you came we the when we met at after the Mellencamp show it was in Jersey I think I think it was in New Jersey yeah do you remember gosh I couldn't remember what year that was I don't remember but I know Andy York yep was playing with you and Andy we got to know Andy maybe Olivier got to know Andy Olivier did yes 
And that's kind of how we got to the show. And uh, it was somewhere out in New Jersey. I rarely venture in New Jersey, but for John Mellencamp, I made an exception. That was a very, very cool night getting to meet you. I'd already been a fan. I'd bought your first four records when they came out back in the day. And uh, I did want to mention that there's a famous radio show in Indiana, the Bob and Tom show. And uh, Tom Griswold told me that he was in New York in 1973 and that you couldn't go anywhere in the city without seeing your face plastered on subways everywhere. Elliot Murphy is going to be a monster was everywhere. And it was like, it was like, really? That's yeah. He was going on and on about it, which doesn't surprise me. I wanted to have a list of 15 essential Elliot Murphy songs. I ended up with like 46, so I'm not going to go that deep. The first tune on it, Last of the Rockstars, Mellencamp used to play that one. And he's a big fan of yours, of course, as well. Yeah, I just received something from MTV, because apparently he performed that on MTV or somewhere at some time, and they want to put that into their archives somewhere. So uh... He did. I mean, I, I know he was doing it when he did the Good Samaritan tour. That record came out. I don't think that song is on that record but i know he was doing it and rightfully so what a great uh what a great song got a feeling on my back like an old brown jacket like to stay in school but i just can't hack it one of my favorite lines so that tune how's the family was is i think the best song on that record chilling lyrics stand the test of time great stuff man um, well, that, so that brings me back to that uh, poster campaign you were talking about in new york Ellie Murphy is going to be a monster, which was actually a quote from a Village Voice review. What happened with that album, just very briefly, and I was not a priority signing there at Polydor, but the album came out and just generated this unexpected positive press response, and it kind of caught the label by surprise, as what usually happens. And uh, and they hired a, an ad firm to kind of get the word out, and they came up with this with this poster campaign all over the subways of New York, which is, uh, and I was still taking the subway, of course. So it was something to be down there and confronted with your own face every time you'd get out of a, out of a subway stop. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, in the review in Rolling Stone, as I recall, I believe your record was reviewed in the same long paragraph as Bruce Springsteen's second album. You won hands down as far as the, which record was better at that point. Well, I always like to say, you know, Bruce and I, we back in those early days, it was obvious we were in direct competition. So we really had to decide how to divide up the world. So I said, why don't you play like the 80,000 seat stadiums and I'll stick with the 500 seater clubs. And he's kept his part of the band. <laughs> yeah, <he has. laughs> I reckon he has. And but you still play. I mean, I know he's come to Paris a lot of times and, and you've joined him on stage many times. I have joined him many times and. Not only in France, but in Italy, uh, one time in Trieste, Spain a couple of times, Sweden a couple of times. The last time was in the, in Paris at the Stade de France, which is the huge stadium here, 80,000 people. And he invited uh, my son to be up there with him. And we sang Born to Run with Bruce. And, uh, you know, I was just keeping my eyes off my son there next to Bruce, you know. So. What's your son do? He's a fantastic engineer. You, the apples don't don't fall far from the tree, and he's a producer and an engineer and a musician, and uh, yeah, he's doing pretty well. He just opened a beautiful studio here in Paris, 
And we just finished my new album right before I got on with you guys. I was listening back to the mastering of the new album to see how it, uh, how it sounds. Well, I sure love the song you sent me, Hope. Hope is great, man. What's the album called? Wonder. Is this your 40th record? You know, it's it's hard to count, but I like that number. <laughs> we'll go with 40. <laughs> sure. So many different re-editions and different countries put out different kind of albums. Do you include the live albums? There was a series of bootleg albums and Germany, kind of official bootlegs, but I like 40, so I'm going to go with that. Okay, we'll stick with 40 for today. Where in Paris are you? I am I don't know if you know Paris at all, but Paris is divided into quarters called arrondissements. Start one is right in the center at Notre Dame, and then they go around like a, a snail like that. So I'm a number two, so I'm pretty much right in the center as well. Le Marais? Very close. You, The Marais is actually the third arrondissement, and I'm in the second, so that's very close to me. I've yeah. spent time in La Cité and Le Marais before. I haven't been to Paris more than three times, but love the city. Um, I speak serviable French, but there's a clear realization that a French person would rather speak their language than allow me to butcher it, despite my efforts. (laughs) Now that I think about it, uh, I need you to do me a favor, Elliot, after this. Go to Charles de Gaulle Airport and pick up my wife's winter coat, because she left it there last year when we were in, we were changing planes, but we we adopted a little girl from Bulgaria. Oh, And so we were hurrying through the airport, and she puts all her stuff in one of those, you know, we 15 bins or whatever. We get outside. It's freaking cold out. I'm like, where's your coat? She's like, oh, no. I'm like, so <laughs> if you could do me a favor, it's it's a purple coat. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. I'm sure it's still there. You know, I have not been to the airport now in a couple of years because of the COVID. You know, normally I'm doing 50 or 60 shows a year. And I think in 2020, I did uh, 15 or something. So. so I have to ask, how did you end up? in Paris that well I came here you in 1971 I was just another hippie from New York and I you know I miss San Francisco summer of peace and love but Amsterdam was still happening so I went went to Amsterdam and then I went to Belgium to Brussels and then to uh, Paris then I ended up down in Rome where I did a tiny bit part in a Fellini movie, started writing songs. And I just, you know, the European way of life, just, I liked it, which is surprising because everything I loved always came from California, you know, from custom cars to surfing and the Beach Boys. But the European way of life, that I don't know, that sense of history. That is un- undeniably, you know, it's indelible. You can't go to Paris without your jaw dropping. You're paying attention. It's a, be- I mean, Europe in general. I mean, this country is such a baby compared to Florence or Paris. It really is. You know, if you get an apartment in New York, pre-war is before, a pre-war apartment, which are quite viable, is before the Second World War. In Paris, it's pre-war if it's before the French Revolution, so. So you moved there in 71, you say? So 71, I I took this trip here, but then I went back to, got a record deal and put out the album Aqua Show that Dane was was talking about. And uh, 1979, I played my first show here. Unbeknownst to me, I had a public here. And I was so thrilled to be up on stage here. I did six encores. They, I would, didn't want to leave, you know. Between 79 and 89, my career just totally shifted to Europe. And I was playing in not only in France, but Italy and Spain. 
Scandinavia all over, everywhere except England. I never did much in England. There must then be I- an allure to your kind of music. Um, are you familiar with Bruce Coburn from Canada? Oh, yeah. If I had a grenade launcher, was that his song? Well, well, well before that, when he was playing just acoustic, no band, it was just gorgeous. I heard stories that from reputable sources that he was a busker in Paris and he, he got very addicted to the city. And he was there for a couple of years playing the streets. I think he was. You could actually make a living busking back then. I, I was busking in Switzerland. And Switzerland, as long as you didn't play too long, they 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 put a lot of money in your hat. You know, that's kept, kept me, started me wearing hats. But in 1989, I moved here. And I've been here ever since. I've been, I met my wife, who I had met six years earlier, but we had no contact for six years. But I found her again. We're still together which is great credit to her, her sense of <laughs> tolerance, I guess. And then I've been here ever since. You know, Dan, I wanted to tell you that album, Aqua Show, you were talking about, that was released in France in a collection. I think they released John Cale's 1919. Do you know that? Oh, album? yeah, I sure do. A couple yeah. of others, all in the series of kind of American singer-songwriters, you may not know, a couple of, 74, 75, a couple of years after it was out. That really started things here for me. And as I said, I was completely unaware of it until I moved here. There's a reason that they re-released that record and that you actually re-released it yourself, the deconstructed version of Aqua Show, which is very cool. It was Gaspar who produced it. And uh, it, I must say it was very more emotional than I thought it would be to him on the other side of the glass and I'm singing How's the Family. Speaking of uh, deconstructing, I just happened to find, to my amazement and delight, your performance on the uh, Paris New Morning of Drive All Night. I love the arrangement. That song, man, it's just, it's a beautiful song. And I love the way it sort of builds. Like I said, I think you guys could probably play that, that intro for two f- full minutes. The original version of that song, that's the first time I ever heard you on the radio in Indianapolis played Drive All Night when the Just a Story from America record first came out i can remember hearing that thinking man that's a cool tune and that's when i went and bought that record we got pretty good airplay in the midwest i mean there was a dj named kid leo who you might have heard of and uh i played in indiana i believe with uh the kinks was that possible i know you did a bunch of opening shows with the kinks back in the day i i I saw mellencamp open up for the kinks in 79 that was interesting him too well, it was a way to keep the brothers fighting on stage. You know. That's what John said. <laughs> it was like constant, those guys, you know. I just want our listeners to know if they haven't really dove deep into your catalog, that there's a bunch of these tunes that they need to listen to. I have a question about the Eva Braun song. That's always been one of my favorites, you know, because everybody was kind of talking about how, which is about Hitler. And everybody was kind of saying, you know, all those guys ended up in South America and always wondering... But man, how it's like a little movie in a song. You know, what Lou Reed always said he was trying to do, you definitely achieved in that song. Do you remember anything about writing that? Eva Braun was originally called The Love Song of Eva Braun. And I wrote it because in the mid-70s, there was a flirtation between rock and roll and fascism that was very weird. There was kind of this glam rock thing and, you know, People were using some Nazi uh, uniforms and insignias. And that's what I really was singing about in that song. You know, I said, and someday soon, I fear they'll sing that song again. It's such a delicate subject. You know, I didn't want anyone to hear that song and think in any way I was saying anything, but we have to keep vigil. 
about fascism coming back because there's a lure. When I wrote that song, I never would have believed that some 50 years later, there would be torchlight parades in Charlottesville, Virginia of white supremacists. I mean, we that was unimaginable at that time. Unfortunately, that song was a little, uh, a little futuristic, I guess. There were several things. I mean, the understatement is there's a lot of unimaginable stuff going on politically, medically, socially. What a great song, and I'd suggest everybody give a listen to that. Diamonds by the Yard. If you like Lou Reed and David Bowie and Elliot Murphy, you're going to love that one. And your voice in, you know, all your songs, you didn't do that in, but you were started out way in your low register, and at the end, you're just wailing an octave up. And that's always been one of my favorites. That's a three-quarter, too, Dave. That's just three chords. Come on now, three chords. That's a Louie Louie. <laughs> and the truth, right? Three chords and the truth. Lou Reed said anything over three, four chords, and it's jazz. Which he kind of got into a jazzy little thing after a while. While we're on Lou Reed, tell us about your involvement with him. He was going to produce your second record for a while. Lou was kind of very important in the, the early days. Uh, I met Lou because when I was knocking on doors... For a record deal, I'd met the head of A&R of Mercury Records was a guy named Paul Nelson, a legendary figure who had gone to school with Bob Dylan in Minneapolis. And he was putting out on Mercury Records a live Velvet Underground album. And he asked me if I wanted to write liner notes. Just out of the blue, we got to know each other and he knew. I came late to the Velvet Underground. Really Loaded was the first album I really got into. If I wanted to write liner notes, and I did, and I gave them to him, and then I guess he gave them to Lou for his approval, and Lou called my mother, because that was the phone number Paul Nelson had for me in New York City, and I came to visit my mother in New York, and my mother said, oh, this nice boy, Louis Reed, called up here. I had a long conversation with him, because he's from Freeport, Long Island, and I'm from Baltimore, Long Island, two towns right next to each other. And my mother remembered that conversation till the day she died, which a couple of years ago. She said, at the end of the conversation, she said to Lou, she said, my son will be very pleased to hear you called. And Lou said, why? And he said, because he's a great admirer of yours. And Lou Reed said, isn't everybody? <laughs> Lou started coming to my shows at Max's Kansas City when I was on Polydor. And he was really the one that brought me to RCA Records. And I made that move from Polydor to RC. And he was going to produce my second album. But then I think he got arrested. I don't want to go deep into it, but it was a difficult time for Lou. So uh, instead, I went out to L.A. and I worked with The Doors producer, Paul Rothschild. I bet he had a few stories. Oh, he had a lot of stories about Jim. And uh, I always like to say Jim Martin Morrison lasted three months in Paris. I've been here for 30 years. Right. <laughs> That's right. So that, yeah, Paul brought in a lot of, and told me a lot of stories about Jim. The, the story I loved the most was that Jim was living in a motel and without a telephone. And when they wanted to get Jim to the studio, they'd have to call like the motel office and someone would go <laughs> knock on his door. Jeez. Chances are he probably didn't answer very often either, I would guess. Back to my list here. Isadora's Dancers, one of my favorite songs you ever wrote, man. How'd you come up with that idea? When I left Europe in 71, I went to San Francisco. And that song mentioned San Francisco, and that was a that was kind of a wild time for me. And we were living, my girlfriend and I at the time, we were living with a, a topless dancer and her daughter. 
she used to rehearse in the apartment, which was really great. So that that kind of inspired that song. Tuned down to an open tuning before I even knew what they were. When did you perform that song with the choir? That was in Le Havre, France. And my guitar player, Olivier Durand, who's from Le Havre, and we've been to playing together for 26 years, he teaches at a music school up there. And so we're kind of the music school extravaganza. We got together the choir of the school and we did Isadora's Dancers. The next record was the one that I was most familiar with when I was young um, that had Drive All Night on it. Just a story from America, which sure, one of these days, Elliot, I promise you that that's going to come out. My daughter, Abigail's version of it, which is damn good. She did a better job than me. I got to say, I love her version. There is so much youth and energy and promise. We got to get that out some way. Well, we might just get it out without even telling her and then just say, well, it's out. My wife loves her version. My son loves her version. My brother, who was my tour manager for many years and has worked with everyone from the Talking Heads to Brian Ferry to uh, you name it. He loves that version. Which is a great song, too. Just a story from America. Come on. It was my idea to rock it up, but it was I didn't tell her how to sing it. That's for sure. She knew what to do. You did rock it up, and it came out... It came out like kind of I imagined it. I recorded that in England, and the drummer was Phil Collins. He was doing kind of sessions at that time, and Peter Gabriel had just left uh, Genesis. And I remember <laughs> talking to Phil, saying, well, what are you going to do now? And he said, I don't know. He says, we've auditioned so many singers. I'm so sick of it. I'm thinking of singing myself. There is a future for drummers who sing. Yeah, I'm still at it, man. I'm still at it. Caught short in the long run. You guys all need to hear this one. That's one of my favorites that you ever wrote, too. Some of the lyrics, it's about a couple breaking up. I am not, don't know how personal it was for you, but I'm friends with that darkness you've been seeing. I, we dated once or twice in earlier years. How personal was that song? I guess about as personal as you can get. I mean, it was uh, marriage number two, and you know we were kind of childhood sweethearts almost and uh we were climbing up the rock and roll mountain together and then fell off the other side and around the time of that album it was really all breaking up and i think that song was my swan song to that marriage that's always a great fodder for successful music i mean you just mentioned phil collins that first album face value was very very much about that it served his music pretty well i think so once i was in the lone star cafe in new york with doc Pomas. I don't know who I was with. Somebody knew him. I got to meet him. And I said to him, I said, Doc, what's the secret to writing a hit song? He says, it's very easy. You just got to get your heart broken and then you can write a hit song. He said, but the tough part is when you need the follow up, you got to get your heart broken all over again. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be some truth to that where something just pours out that's kind of beyond trying to think about what it is. It's something that you have to get out. Where does your impetus come from having been married, what you said, 30 years? Well, this is marriage number three. This is the one that's really stuck. You know, my wife is, she's French and she's an actress. And so our lifestyles are not so different. You know, she, she travels when she works. I think she's happy when I leave and she's happy when I come back. I never discovered this record until later because I kind of lost track of what you did for a while. But the Change Will Come record was one of my favorites that you did. I think I read somewhere where maybe it wasn't one of your favorites, but Sean Colvin sings backgrounds on that record. Is the Smithereens or the band on that or some of the guys? 
I think the guitar player, he was playing uh, his Rickenbacker 12 string on it because that record was produced by Jim Ball, who had produced the Smithereens or engineered the Smithereens. And yeah, Sean Colvin was singing in a Tex-Mex restaurant in New York called Cottonwood that I used to go eat at. Once I went to the Cottonwood with Bruce Springsteen to eat. And this was a small little restaurant. And I said, you got to hear this singer. And we anyway, we're sitting at our table eating and the waitress came over and she looks at Bruce. And this was kind of born in the USA days. I mean, it was, you know, he was all over the place. She looked at Bruce and she froze and she said, you know, for a minute, I thought you were him. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) No one recognized him. And we heard Sean Colvin sing and she was tremendous. Her first sessions she ever did. Well, she's fabulous. Your voices sound great together on that record. Yeah, I'm not going to go song by song on that. I don't like that many records straight through, but that's one of them. But there's one, I have Apple Music now, I guess most of us do. There's an extra song on there that I'd never heard before, But Time Flies. That is a great song, man. How come that one didn't end up on that record? Yeah, I call it the Bob Dylan syndrome. He always leaves the best songs off his records, you know? It is the best song. It's like, wow. That song is come to be a a bittersweet song it's a song i have sang at so many funerals because it's about uh, you know losing loved ones you know i sang it at my mother's funeral and at my wife's mother's funeral uh, time flies it does on elvis presley's birthday a classic that has turned into a classic and i never imagined it would it's one of those rare songs i wrote as a poem first usually i I write the music and the words come together. You know, I I get a line with a melody or a bit of a chorus or something. But that song I wrote as a a straight out poem and it was published in a a magazine in France in translation. And then some years later, I just had that chord progression. Those words, I started singing, speaking them really over it. It's it's really a spoken word kind of song. And it's based on, you know, real memory of it. I lost my father when I was quite young. I was 16. He was 48. And so whatever memories I have of him are very precious. And I remember we were driving around once and the, the radio DJ saying it's Elvis Presley's birthday. This was probably in the early 60s. That was it. The strange thing about that song, Dane, is, uh, like I said, it's a spoken word song. There's a lot of New York references, the Bowery and uh, Canal Street. And the people would know that on the Bowery, which is a street in lower Manhattan, There are restaurant supply stores, whereas on Canal Street, there are Army, Navy surplus stores. But the amazing thing is that song, people relate to it all over the world. I've sang that song in Japan. As my friend Bruce once said, that he thinks the songs know more about us than we know about the songs. There's the magic. And that whole record, 12, that had greetings from Sydney, that was another spoken word. I sang that because I got a postcard from from J.D. Dougherty, who plays drums with but Patty Smith, and he played drums with me for a while, too, and he sent me a postcard from Australia, which said, greetings from Sydney. Boom. Let It Rain, which was the album closer of that record. That's a beautiful song. The Selling the Gold record, that's, that's another one that's a classic you can listen to all the way through, especially Love to America. Love that one. Then I'm Going to Make Love to You with Sonny Landreth. He played on that sucker again. He's some badass slide playing. And then Bruce sang with you on Selling the Gold. He sang on Everything I Do Leads Me Back to You. Did you guys get together and do that? Did he do that long distance? Well, you know, I knew his career was in a slump, and I really wanted to help him, so. <laughs> he was falling on hard times. <laughs> he was falling on hard times, so do a duet with me. What happened was I'd written the song, 
And I brought it out to him. I was visiting him in New Jersey. I asked if he would like to listen to it, maybe sing on it. And it was on a dad. Remember dad? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had a dad player in his car. And that, so we went out and sat in his car and it was raining too in New Jersey. And he listened to the rough, you know, the basic of that song. And he liked it. And he said, yeah, I could do that. I think he liked the, the car imagery imagery rolling on my rims you know so we sent him i recorded that at a great studio in belgium called icp i said what do you want us to send you bruce to to do your recording do you do you have an adat machine and he said no i don't think i have an adat and i said hmm, what should we send you and he said well in the kitchen i got this uh, 32 track digital machine that sony sent me so we sent him the tapes and and then i didn't hear anything from him for a couple of months i figured maybe he got too busy and then it was like four o'clock in the morning, the telephone rings here in Paris, and I'm sleeping. And it's hello. Hey, Elliot, it's Bruce. I just did it. And I was, you know, thrilled. And uh, I asked him just to sing the choruses with me, but I think he liked the imagery in one verse so much, you know, I had the car imagery that he sang a whole verse too. I've known him, we, as you were saying before we started out together, we we're both in the new Bob Dylan club because of that Rolling Stone review. And, uh, you know, he's, a, you know, that man's got integrity in his DNA, I think. He's best buddies with John Mellencamp now. Yeah, the Wasted Days. Yeah, that was a fun track, and it's nice to have played one that, that the boss is on. Well, the drums really drove that track. Without those drums on there, I don't know if that would have been much really did. Well, I appreciate that, Elliot. He's going to bring this up now for six months, Elliot. Thanks a lot. Oh, yeah. I'm going to talk about it every time we do this. One of the things that you can do that there's only one other songwriter that I know of that can do it all, and that's Bob Dylan, is the long-form narrative. Like Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts off of Blood on the Tracks record, which has got, I don't know, 5,000 verses. You're the only guy that can do that as well or better than him. On Romeo Street... And put it down from rainy season. I don't know how quickly you wrote those, how much time it took. It almost sounds like you just sat down and did it. Kerouac teletype roll time or something. But they're so great, man. How do you keep that rolling for 12 verses or 13 verses? You know, Dan, you are so right. The longer songs take the shortest time to write. You know, it just makes you think that the songs are coming from somewhere else. And we just... Keith Richards said the songs are just floating by and then you just grab them and pull them down for a while. And I was in a, a hotel, I think, after a gig down in Toulouse, France, and I was watching TV at the time. And I just started writing those words, you know. I don't know why you can lie like a telephone baby. <laughs> that was the first line. And we recorded that at a studio that was located right next to the, the World Trade Centers in New York City. Put it down. 12 verses, I think. Well, that's 12 verses. It's after midnight, and I got to go. So you did write that in one set. I did write that in one set. And we recorded it. And I think that was the second take, the whole thing. It was all live. My favorite song, though, that you've ever done is Navy Blue. Yeah, I listened to that Man, this morning. It's one of those songs where I don't listen to it very often because I don't want to start. I don't want to tear up. There's only a couple songs that'll do that to me. That What's that Warren Zevon song from his last record? Keep me in your heart for a while. I can't listen to that. Same. Navy Blue, I listen to it anyway, but it's like, man, I just feel like that old man at the end sitting on that park bench. It's like, what a graphic, wonderful scene. That was inspired by a song by the great 
Belgium-French songwriter Jacques Brel. He had a song called Amsterdam that was kind of inspired by him. Yeah. Well, I've used that several times with when I'm writing songs with people. I say, let's listen to this and let's try to write something this good. And we haven't done it yet. So we'll keep trying, though. You wrote some pretty good ones, Dave. Well, th- I appreciate that. Broken Ladder, I'm going to throw that in there now. I sent you one verse with that title, and I think I had the whole verse was done, had the melody. And then what you about 12 hours later, Elliot's got three more verses and a chorus, and, and he just recorded it and sent it back to me. It was like, whoa, the sheer magnitude and volume of what you produce as a writer is, is staggering to me, and the quality, all that mixed in together. But man, that, that was a damn nice song, I have to say, Broken Ladder. I mean, you just fed it into the machine. I mean, the, first of all, you know, we're supposed to get better at a jobs the longer we do them. So I suppose the longer we write songs, the better we're supposed to get at it. You know, I always thought that the reason musicians get into so much trouble is we've got too much time on our hands in between recording and, and playing and everything. But if I have any advice for songwriters, it's when you feel the muse is there, go for it. Because when it's not there, it's gone. So that was a case, Broken Ladder, bump, boom. That was inspiring what you had done. And I was, I just jumped on a train that was already moving. Ground Zero. There's the other one that there's there can't be a dry eye in the house if you listen to that. And Olivier co-wrote that with you. I was in New York. It was just it was just the three months after 9-11, I think. And there were still on the site there, the World Trade Center, there were so many little posters up. Have you seen my mother? Have you seen my sister? Have you seen? I mean, there were thousands of them. And uh, it was so moving and heartbreaking. That's where that came from. Well, and something else that people should take note of, the Middle Kingdom record that you did, it's kind of like Jack Kerouac with acoustic guitar. And in particular, I, I suggest everybody check out Do Angels Wear Shoes? And if that doesn't make you think twice about everything, nothing will. Well, that song came, that album came about because of the confinement here. We were in lockdown. All my dates were canceled. Olivier, my guitarist, was living in Le Havre. And uh, he was only allowed to travel 100 kilometers from there and meet. So we couldn't work together. I had a book of poetry called Middle Kingdom. And I said, why don't we pick some of those poems and I'll record them at my son's studio. And then you can put some music to them. And uh, we've got a second one in the works, too. Well, Lou Reed used to say, uh, my week beats your year. But I'd say that Elliot's week beats nearly everybody's year. As your buddy Springsteen has said, I admire him greatly. Thank you for all the work you've done. Before we finish up here, though, Elliot Murphy's Aqua Show, your first big splash into the whole thing, actually came from your dad's Aqua Show. You know, that that was a 50s thing. Okay, what it was, my father, and I'm a junior. My father was Elliot Murphy Sr. And he had this show. He was a poor kid from Brooklyn. His father was a blacksmith who, uh, you know, I guess came in the Irish immigration wave of the early 1900s. And uh, my father somehow got involved in show business and ended up having a show on the site of the World's Fair right outside of Manhattan. And he had this show called Aqua Show. It was a huge Olympic pool with like those Esther Williams style swimmers, clown divers jumping off the high boards and some amazing music. There was Duke Ellington played there for a couple of seasons, Cap Calloway, comedians, it was everything, you know? And uh, he had that show for like 10 or 12 years. And uh, he taught me a great show business lesson. He said, you know, and it was an outdoor show. He said, no matter how good the show is, 
if it rains, nobody comes. There's a big element of luck in this business, as we both know. So as I, as I said before, my father passed away when I was 16. And I guess that album was kind of my homage to him. I, I had a band at the time. It was called Elliot Murphy's Aqua Show. We were playing around in New York. We used to play at a place called the Mercer Arts Center. The New York Dolls used to play there and Patti Smith. But the biggest band that came out of there was Kiss. Yeah, they talk about, you know, the early 70s and the whole punk movement. and uh, But Kiss were the ones who really... <laughs> They really got the whole enchilada out of that deal. Are you going to be able to get out and play some shows? I did. You know, things opened up a little bit in November. We did, I think I did five shows and I did a show in Belgium last Saturday. But now they've thrown in some new restrictions for the next month to see how things go. But I hope so. In my best years, I did 110 shows, I think, in one year. Then I'm officially retired, so I do about 50 or 60. But uh, you don't realize how much you miss it being on the road until you can't go back out on the road, you know, because every time I'd come off a tour, I'd say to my wife, oh, I just wish I could stay home and do nothing for a while. So be careful what you wish for. Same here. We're supposed to go out next year. So John should come to Paris. I saw him play once at the Zenith Paris. Might've been the last time he was here. I mean, a bit really big venue was about 15 or 20 years ago. He was great. The audience loved him. We made a quick stop maybe about 12 years ago. Was it the Olympia? Must have been the Olympia. That is a legendary place. That's where Jimi Hendrix opened for Johnny Holiday, who was a French singer. The Beatles played there. The Stones played there. Bob Dylan played there and draped a huge American flag in the background, if you've ever seen uh, videos. of way, way before Springsteen. Way before Bruce, yeah. Well, I think he had just come from England and it was the whole booing thing when, you know, he do half the show acoustic, half electric. In France, they loved it. He didn't have any problem here. You know, whatever Bob did was okay with them. What's the first concert that you went to as a fan and you bought a ticket and went to the show? It might have been Cream. Good choice. I was a huge fan of Cream and Eric Clapton, 67. So I think I saw them at a place that it was like a hockey rink out on Long Island. And the PA broke. So they could hardly sing. And they just had these huge martial amps and just played, you know, jammed, which is really what all I wanted to hear anyway. But. It could have been cream. And then uh, in my father, after he had the Aqua Show, he had a restaurant. And on Saturdays, they used to have college mixers there. And I remember the Ronettes performed there. And I remember going back because I was like the owner's little kid son, you know, so I could run around everywhere and going into their dressing room. And they were there waiting, waiting and waiting. And Dane, that's what I learned about this business. There's a lot of waiting, huh? Yeah, man. Hurry up and wait, right? The great thing is with digital performer, digital recorder, we don't have to wait for things to rewind anymore. I think that was the first show, Andy, that I can think of. I might be missing something, but but then after that, a couple of years after that, things really opened up. I mean, I saw Jimi Hendrix play. I saw there was the Fillmore East in New York. So I saw Led Zeppelin there and Jeff Beck there so many times. And uh, was it the Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart? With Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood on bass. I saw Bob Dylan when he did the, uh, the band tour in 1975. And I saw John play at Bottom Line in New York. That's when I met him for the first time. He, he had a, I think he was on Mercury. And there was a publicist there, Sh Sherry Ring, that was really 
really doing a great job for him. And she brought me backstage and I said hello to him. That was that was the first time I think we met. We also like to cover uh, and talk about cover artwork. But I guess in this case, too, it's I'll kick it over to Hugh, but not just album cover artwork, but also books for that matter, of which, you know, I think it's appropriate to talk about. And they're much the same vehicle for having shelf appeal. You know, I think the only thing to talk about with Elliot are just the change of hats from cover to cover. I'm seeing lots of hats on your discography. But, you know, the bigger question I, I ask every artist that we talk to is just how important were covers? You seem very much all about the music. But when I look at Lost Generation, I look at some of the other covers you've done, there's clearly some creative decision being made that the text be kind of grungy and and almost urgent looking on some of them. And then on Lost Generation, it's almost a deco style logo, which I think stayed with you all the way through to um, If You Like Bob. I'm noticing it was had made a reappearance anyways. Tell me about buying records as a kid, album covers for yourself as an artist. How, How does it all matter to you? Most of my generation who grew up with, you know, 12-inch vinyl, I mean, the covers were everything. Then the covers got reduced on CDs and now on Spotify. I mean, what is a cover? It's the size of a postage stamp. I mean, it's really lost. But back in those days, I mean, and when I did the Aquashow cover, I was very much inspired by a Rolling Stones cover. I thought the Stones covers were, were the best back then in the 60s. There was one called Between the Buttons. And they had like this kind of fuzzy circle around the band, band's faces. And that's, I asked the photographer to do the same thing on that. And I also, for Just a Story from America, uh, somehow I convinced Columbia to hire David Bailey, photographer who did quite a few Stones covers. He was, he was really the, they say he was the character that the photographer and blow up in the film that was based on. He sent us two photos. And the, on the cover, I'm kind of falling off the side of the album. I mean, my face is cut like that. Maybe he could see inside my psyche. That's about where I was going at that time. And then one color shot for the for the interior. My idea at the beginning, you, I always wanted to have all my covers shot in hotel rooms, but it just didn't turn away. I did shoot in a hotel here, which was famous because it's where Oscar Wilde died the poet and writer. Wonderful insights. And what a wordsmith he was, eh? Well, his dying words as he was lying in that hotel room was either the wallpaper or me has got to go. <laughs> if I ever need a kick, a kick or an inspiration, I find when you go and ask any question in Google, what did Oscar say about that? Invariably, it's, it's hilarious. It's, it's poignant. It's It's on. It's right on. Why hotel room? Just that kind of reason right there? Luckily, for my line of work, I've always loved living in hotel rooms, you know. As Dane can attest to, you check into a hotel room and you organize your whole life within those four walls, you know. And, you know, I've become used to it. Uh, It's kind of my comfort zone, you know. There was a legendary hotel in the town I grew up in called the Garden City Hotel. And my family used to go there for for the Sunday breakfasts where Charles Lindbergh stayed the, before he flew to, to Paris. I was always a big fan of F. Scott Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby. And a lot of that took place in the Plaza Hotel. So that's where we shot the Aqua Show cover. Plaza Hotel. The second cover, uh, that was shot by a photographer named Ed Karif. He shot the Jimi Hendrix with the burning guitar on his knees at uh, Monterey. I wanted to shoot in the Beverly Hills Hotel but they wouldn't let us shoot there for some reason. So 
what was the first album that spoke to you? Wasn't there an Electric Ladyland cover full of naked girls? Yes, there was. 16 or 17, that was the one that probably spoke to me the most. <laughs> that still speaks to me pretty good. There was a great Roxy Music cover, or is it a Brian Ferry cover? Of oh, well, that's people? got the chicks. That's country life. Avalon of Roxy Music. The cover suits the music so well. One of my favorite all-time albums. It's a great album. And that's I, a great record. When I, when I saw that warrior looking at, at the Vista, it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. But nowadays, what is the future of album covers? Who knows? I mean, we have to. Videos kind of took over, you know. And uh, I, I started in 74. And I had the luxury of working on the big canvas of 12-inch vinyl for years. And yeah. then, of course, I always say the door closed on vinyl, but the, the window opened when you suddenly had clients of my echelon. They weren't sort of limited to eight-page booklets. They uh -huh. could do a 24-page booklet. So suddenly you had the opportunity to take every lyric and illustrate every lyric, you know, harvest the imagery from the lyric and then create something that works adjacent to that lyric or under that lyric. So suddenly you had more canvases. Granted, they were four and three quarter inches square. And to your point earlier, it's quite awful to see your work as that subtext or that afterthought in iTunes. But vinyl's making a resurgence. And gratefully, I've got a few clients who still insist on doing big box sets and vinyl. So it's not all lost. But yeah, it's not the same, by all means. I keep ignoring the format and just creating for the square, despite the scale. Just Every once in a while, I'm mindful of the fact that it needs to be iconic and, and discernible at that small scale. But every once in a while, if I'm taken to a, a place where I think it needs to be enjoyed as an image in, in, in its own right. You know, things have changed. When Just a Story from America came out, America, there's one song on there, Summer House, and I mentioned the word breast. The company said, oh, you can't say that in a song. They're never going to play it on the radio. And man, you listen to what they say in hip hop today. Yeah, that's about as tame as you can get right there. Elliot, how many books have you published? 14 or 15? I don't think so. Maybe. Well, maybe that's just the different in different languages. That's it. How did you get started? I mean, I know you did some writing for Rolling Stone. Did you interview Tom Waits one time or something? I did. I interviewed Tom Waits for Rolling Stone. Uh, it was kind of after I left Columbia Records, and it was a struggle. And uh, I ran into Jan Wenner, who was the publisher at the time in New York. And I said, you got to work for me? And he said, sure. We knew each other from... Uh, I was around kind of when Rolling Stone started, and we did some talk shows together way back in the early... 70s or when they moved to new york that was it when rolling stone moved to new york they had me write it from san francisco they had me write an article called elliot murphy's new york and i went around the city with lynn goldsmith the famous photographer and we got like cbgb's and manny's music store and all these iconic music places and i wrote a little text so i interviewed tom waits for them i did a long interview with keith richards that was for a couple of other magazines and uh, that was the story that was something Briefly, so the the interview is is set on a Monday at twelve o'clock or something. I get a call at eleven. Keith's got a toothache, you know, can't make it. Okay, it's going to be Tuesday. Okay, Tuesday at eleven, I get a call. Keith's got a headache, he can't make it. This went on every day until, and the deadline was like, you know, Saturday. So Friday, they say, okay, definitely, it's happening today. Be there three o'clock. So I get to there at Keith's manager's office. You know, four o'clock. Keith strolls in, gives me a little wave, disappears into the back room, comes back out a half hour later with his bottle of Rebel Yell. And I said, 
and says, Dr. Richards, we'll see you now. And of course, he's just so charming and so wonderful. You, you're just, you know, you're just melting. The first thing he said to me, he says, so they tell me you're a musician. I say, yeah. He said, what do you play? I say, the guitar. And he says, oh, that damn thing. And I've got that on tape. So I did, I did some writing for Rolling Stone. And then I started writing these short stories. And uh, one of them was published in Rolling Stone. It was called Cold and Electric. And then uh, I turned that into a novel. And uh, Rolling Stone tried to get a publisher interested. But you're not going to believe this. But the common wisdom of the day from publishers was that people who listen to rock and roll music are not don't read books. That's what they thought. We couldn't get it published. I got it published in French and in German and in Spanish. And then I have a couple other novels out, one called Tramps, which is about my post-punk era in uh, New York City. I wrote a Western inspired by Sergio Leone films called uh, Poet Justice. And, uh, and my memoirs came out last year in French and Spanish and in English. Just a story from America. So I, I kind of, you know, I, I need the both. As I've often said, literature is my religion, but rock and roll is my addiction. Do you have a book in, in progress? I have a book I've, uh, I co-wrote during the confinement with a Spanish author. It shifts in time and place between Christopher Columbus and modern day times, and it takes place during the COVID. Are those flashbacks or are those, dare I say, a time travel? Yeah, a little bit of time travel, yeah. You know who it was inspired by Kurt Vonnegut. I was a huge fan of Kurt Vonnegut, you know. Also from Indiana. He's, He's from, from Indiana, Indiana as well. well. Yeah. Slaughterhouse Five. We were just talking about that earlier today. Kurt Vonnegut, James Dean, John Mellencamp, Steve McQueen, Dane Clark. My God. <laughs> That's right. That's the Indiana Mount Rushmore right there. I'm hanging on for dear life, but I'm still up there. He's got two he's going to hold over our head now. Okay. <laughs> That's right. I can't uh, qualify. I'm Canadian, so. You know, I thought I heard a bit of a Canadian accent there with you, but I wasn't going to out you. Oh, for sure, eh? <laughs> Where in Canada? Well, I was born near Montreal in a small town called Cornwall. Ended up in St. Catharines, where everybody was from. I, I later found out that my classmate was the drum tech for Neil Peart. Uh, Neil was from that area, and we spent three years there. Went to England for six years, came back. So Toronto predominantly was the hub, but I lived in New York for two years and L.A. for 16 years. Now Newcastle, Indiana, of all places. We were in Montreal. It was our last trip out before the COVID, and I felt more at home there than New York, I think, because everyone's speaking French. One last little thing. Tell us about Billy Joel inducting you into the Long Island Hall of Fame. That was a nice deal. Yeah, Well, he's a Long Island homeboy, too. I used to see him play at a band called The Hassles on Long Island, and he was amazing even back then. I mean, the first time I ever saw the Hassles, I walked into a club. There were 20 people in the audience. They came out, and he did Give Me Some Lovin', and this was 1966, I, I guess, the song had just come out by Spencer Davis Group. You would have sworn it was Stevie Winwood. He was amazing. He's just, he's an amazing musician, Billy Joel. I mean, he can just play anything. To come down to Electric Lady, where I recorded that song, and uh, if he would play the intro, and it was a one-take deal because he was just so good. And we've kind of kept in touch over the years. And I opened a lot of shows for him back then. Opened a show for him in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and he has a song that was a big show, Allentown. And uh, I found a photo of me and Billy Joel and Dr. John. And I knew someone who knew Billy, and I thought Billy would like that photo. 
and I got it to him, and then we got back in contact. Did you ever play with Mac Rebinac or Dr. John? Dr. John, my first album when I was sent to I was sent to LA to work with a producer named Thomas Jefferson K. And he was going to be the keyboard player. And I can't remember if he was on the session or not, but I did not like the way it was going. I put the kibosh on that and went back to New York because uh, I did not like the way it was going. But uh, I knew Dr. John because he used to, he was living in New York. He used to play down at Tramps sometime, which was a, a blues club. I like did a, I did a every Wednesday night for a couple of years there. And I, it rained every Wednesday night too. But back to Billy Joel. So then he, I asked him if he would induct me into that Long Island Music Hall of Fame. He agreed and he gave just a wonderful speech. And then he invited me to sing with him at Madison Square Garden three days later, where he does that, uh, you know, he's, he has sold it out now, I don't know, hundreds of times. And he asked me what's, what song we wanted to do. He, I wanted to do And I said, well, Let's do a song of another Long Island guy. So we did Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. That was amazing, playing the garden with uh, with Billy Joel there and Walk on the Wild Side, you know. Was that ever captured? I know someone captures everything he's That has to be that has to be on YouTube someplace. Everyone captures everything Billy or Bruce does, but they haven't given it to me yet, but someday we'll ask. Two movies in how many years? Netflix uh, has the Broken Poet movie, and that was that just came out 2018, maybe. Yeah, that came out no right as the the COVID. That movie was going to be premiered at a festival in New York, and then that was all canceled. And that's a full movie. It's based on a short story I wrote many years ago called The Lion Sleeps Tonight and uh, a Spanish director made it into a film featuring a cameo of uh, Bruce Springsteen and Patti Schiappa. And you're not in it? I, I, I play the main part. Oh, excellent. I can't wait to watch this. It's yeah. really cool. And the second act of Elliot Murphy is a documentary about Elliot, which uh, recommend that to any music fan. But what a pleasure, man. Tip my hat to you guys. Thank you so much. to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. 
Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.